Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Ruth DeFries to the podcast. Ruth is a Professor of Ecology and Sustainable Development at Columbia University in New York, co-founding Dean of the Columbia Climate School, and is a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship and many other academic awards. Ruth is an author of over 100 scientific papers related to how people are manipulating the planet and its consequences for humanity. Her most recent book is What Would Nature Do?, where she outlines a set of strategies from the natural world that she believes can help humanity weather many of the environmental crises the world is facing. So uh, thank you very much, Ruth, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Ruth, um, can you just tell us a little bit about you, your background, your interests and, and current work focus? Well, I like to say that I am an Earth Day adolescent. I was coming of age during uh, the time when environmental concerns came to the fore, and that had a very big impact on what I chose to do as a, as a career. So I went into science and uh, environmental work, and, uh, and I've also always been very interested in development and the developing world and uh, and my work has focused on using satellite data to look down on the earth and see what we can see. And what you see is this incredible footprint of our species and how much we impact the earth from the way we produce food and our cities and how how connected we are now. And all of that has led me into thinking about uh, about complexity and the way that nature and society interacts and uh, and leading into the book that we'll be discussing, which is about how do we think about this complex world that we have created for ourselves? Yes, indeed. Complex being uh, the operative word. Now, in, in one of your earlier books, The Big Ratchet, uh, very interesting. On, on one level, it's the story of humanity's ingenuity, as it were, you know, dealing with all kinds of crises and, uh, I guess, continuing story. Um, I'm wondering, do the same principles apply to, to I guess, what Benny sees as, a, as an existential threat, global existential threat, global warming? Do you have the same optimism? Well, The Big Ratchet is about how, from the point of view of producing food to feed humanity, 
how um, how if you look at the whole course of of human history, this cycle of incredible ingenuity to increase production, uh, which leads to problems, environmental problems, or uh, you know, or resource shortages, and then that those problems lead to new solutions, which then lead to new problems. So I think we are in that, we've always been in that cycle and we will always be in that cycle. Does not mean that we'll always be able to solve every problem that we create. Climate change is a, uh, is a primary example of that. We know that given the, uh, the state of the atmosphere currently that we're committed to some climate change, but how much is a function of whether humanity, global society, can get its act together to reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases. So, you know, we've been, humanity has been in that cycle of creating new problems and overcoming those problems, creating new problems and overcoming those. That does not mean that that cycle continues forever into the future. Uh, but there is a lot of ingenuity. There have been, you know, a lot of times when you know, shortages of nitrogen looked imminent and that would drastically affect the food supply. And then there was a, a, a solution to that. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to tell a story of sort of techno optimism that we can always believe in technological solutions. We are a very ingenious species. Do we, can we organize ourselves to take advantage of that ingenuity to solve the very big problems that we face today. Yeah, I, I, that's very interesting. On the one hand, the, the, the technology is a big part of the story, but I also, I, I pick up in your, your writings as well uh, about social aspects of this or political and governance and things like that. Maybe we can talk about that. But one thing that certainly uh, seems to be true in, in, in the big ratchet is this, this idea of the cycle of problems and solutions, which, which are often very interconnected. So one set of uh, solutions eventually gives rise to more problems and so forth. Um, I suppose there's a term for that in, in complexity science, maybe, or, or, or general system science. I mean, uh, just very briefly, I'm wondering when it comes to thinking about uh, environmental issues like global warming, do you think that that, that uh, kind of thinking is important to, to see connections between ideas that give rise to, to, to other problems? Is that something that you think we're doing well? Well, fossil fuels is a primary example. Fossil fuels are amazing source of energy and have powered the so much prosperity over the last you know centuries, and um, just an incredible solution to a problem of how to how to get energy to make economies run, reduce poverty all of the very positive outcomes for people over the last centuries in increasing life expectancy and uh, you know drastic reduction in the number of people living in extreme poverty so all of those are really positive outcomes but that reliance on fossil fuels has created a major major problem and that is climate change so now we are very much in that cycle. Is it possible to have solutions to be able to have a prosperous world and have enough energy to power economies without relying on fossil fuels? And that's what we face. That's our that's the challenge right now. 
what is resilience and why does it matter? Have we been giving it attention? People are talking about resilience now a lot more. Uh, why is that? If we look at the future that we face, we're looking at a lot of uncertainties. Certainly, you know, the pandemics, uh, infectious disease experts have been predicting for quite a while that sooner or later we will have a pandemic like we're seeing now. Um, but when is highly uncertain and how it plays out is highly uncertain. We know we're looking at uh more extreme climate events, but again, when and where and exactly how is highly uncertain and how climate change will play out is, is also uncertain. So we're, we're living in a world with a lot of uncertainties and we're also living in a world where we are so highly interconnected through our globalized uh, economy that when there is a uh, a problem in one part of the world, say you know a virus that emerges in in uh, in a town somewhere, that ricochets throughout throughout the world. So we're living in a situation where there's a lot of uncertainties and a um, and a high likelihood that some event that happens in one part of the world can affect other parts of the world. So how do we think about constructing our systems so that we can minimize the the negative repercussions of those sorts of uncertainties? And that's what the book, What Would Nature Do? That That's really what the book is about, how nature has constructed itself to be resilient to shocks and what we might be able to learn. Biomimicry has been uh, a growing area as well. I don't know whether you just briefly have anything to say about that. Yeah, biomimicry is an amazing field, and there have been uh, so many good examples about learning about materials, for example, Velcro, from how how um, animals can stick to surfaces and all kinds of very interesting things we can learn from biomimicry. What I'm trying to get at in this book is at a more systems level, how nature and ecosystems function to be able to be resilient. In our human world, we tend to think about efficiency and you know, putting in the least amount of effort for the most amount out. But in nature, we see we don't see that. Of course, efficiency is important for for nature. Uh, but there are examples that we can get into, and there are many examples in the book and stories in the book about how uh, how efficiency is not the primary objective, which enables uh, resilience to shocks. So there's a cost to building res- resilient systems. There is a cost. So efficiency is great so long as nothing goes wrong. But when something goes wrong, then then you're going to wish you had some kind of uh, redundancy. So that balance between uh, efficiency and the cost of redundancy is one that depends on how often you would expect disruptions to happen and how disruptive they would actually be. Um what we see from nature is that there is some some benefit from not putting all your stakes in efficiency and preparing for those times when there are 
uh, disruptions, which are inevitable, whether they're a pandemic or a fight from an insect or an extreme climate event or whatever. In the book, Ruth, you identify four specific strategies that you say, that you talk about, that you've observed, that nature follows, as it were. Um, And I'm wondering whether you could talk about those. And I'm wondering also whether you can just maybe explain when you talk about strategies, what does that mean? I mean, what's the difference between a strategy and an outcome in the sense that you can see something has happened, um, but whether or not that's, I suppose, a strategy, it implies some kind of intent, maybe. So the idea of strategies is not that nature does anything by intent or by design, but what evolves over time is what turns out to be the most successful for survival. And nature has survived for a very, very long time, millions and millions of years, So some successful strategies have come to the fore that seem to be beneficial. So the four strategies that uh, that the book identifies as uh, as patterning on nature that I picked up on, other ecologists might pick up on other strategies of nature, is about maintaining diversity. That's the just the foundation of nature is to have diversity so that that if one species gets wiped out by a disease or some uh, predator or some kind of problem, there's another that can take over that function and, uh, and, and take its place. So that's a cost of maintaining diversity, but there is resilience that, that comes from that. That's, that's one strategy and there are, Different examples in the book about that. There is the uh, this, the question of how to design networks. So we think about the connections and all of the the networks that we have in our modern world of global trade, of just airline networks, transport networks, uh, so many different networks, communications networks, infrastructure networks, so many networks that are the foundation of our modern world. Nature has networks also for moving water, for moving sugars, moving food, moving moving things around. So how does nature construct its network? Primary example in the book, which is the cover of the book, is a leaf vein. So if you look at a leaf vein, you'll see that that it's very loopy. It looks like it's not very efficient. What a leaf veins are doing is they're moving water throughout the leaf and bringing sugars back. So that needs to be efficient, very important for a plant to function. And uh, and the question is, what happens if there's a damage, an insect bite or some damage in, in some part of, of the leaf? How can there be resilience so that the whole network of moving water throughout the leaf doesn't break down. So what we see, what evolution has come up with to get around the problem of damage in one part of the leaf, stopping the flow of water and sugars throughout the whole leaf, is this very, what looks inefficient, very loopy network. And physicists have worked on this and done amazing work to uh, to characterize this loopiness of networks that makes it possible to have many, many different ways to get from point A to point B. 
Like if you're stuck in a traffic jam, you want many different ways to get to where you're going to have resilience. And that's what evolution has settled on. Then, then in networks also, uh, in some cases, you don't want materials or things to flow like pathogens, like a virus, like a, a damaging ideas, you know, where you want networks to be able to shut down to stop the flow. And that's where social networks of insects, some insects comes in play to stop the flow of dangerous pathogens that we have a lot to learn from in terms of spreading pathogens throughout our own social networks. So the idea of that chapter is about how to think about the design of networks when you want the materials to flow and be resilient and when you want it to be able to shut down quickly. So that's a that's a big theme in nature about the networks and, and, and the flows. So that's two, diversity networks. The third one is, as you mentioned, the, uh, the bottom-up self-organization. What we don't see in nature is a central command and control. You might think about a queen bee. Well, that queen really doesn't have any power over the worker bees and all of the individuals. The structure, the decisions that the individuals are making, they're not really decisions because they're instinct, but they're basing what they do to build a termite mound or uh, or an ant, ants who are carrying material from crumbs from one place to another. They are not centralized. They are acting on information which is just very local around them, based on information around them. So we see also in human societies, and this is the work of uh, the amazing work of Eleanor Ostrom, who sadly is no longer with us, but won a Nobel Prize in economics, the first woman to get that prize. And she was also not an economist, she was a political scientist who documented this kind of self-organized behavior in human systems when there is a need to collectively manage a resource like like policing or uh, managing a forest or managing fisheries. And she went against the dogma of the time, which was about central control, to, uh, to document the conditions under which people self-organize to have effective management of their resources. So that is along the, she didn't relate it to nature or, or you know, queen bees or anything like that, but, uh, but there is a parallel in this self-organizing behavior in nature and the kind of self-organizing behavior that Eleanor Ostrom documented in so many cases. Now, what does that mean from, for our human societies and the way we govern ourselves is that people that are in a situation and know their local surroundings are in the best position to be able to make decisions that are good for themselves. That doesn't mean that every, you know everybody makes their own decisions for themselves because clearly some some decisions and governance needs to be centralized like developing a vaccine or you know regulations to to stop uh, vested interests from from polluting and things like that but the work of Ostrom shows us that there are conditions under which 
uh, allowing self-organizing behavior leads to better outcomes than, uh, than central command and control. So that's the third one. And the fourth one is about the, uh, the strategies in nature that we see to be self-correcting, the ability to pull back from the brink of catastrophe. And that is the idea that, uh, that if we think about the way that carbon cycles in and out of the atmosphere, very important for our climate change problem, uh, there's a self-regulating mechanism, which I won't go into detail here, but it's, <laughs> but it's a function of temperature that keeps a steady state, keeps the amount of greenhouse gas or carbon in the atmosphere oscillating, not always the same, but oscillating between, uh, between extremes. So if it gets too high, there's a mechanism that kicks in place to lower. If it gets too low, kicks in place to higher. We see that same sort of self-regulating behavior in, for instance, insulin, in regulating the amount of blood sugar, uh, different examples from physiology, where there's this ability to pull back from the brink. And we see that in one example in the book is the, is the circuit breakers in the financial world that keeps the stock market from collapsing, where there is it kicks in automatically. Well, this is set by people, but it kicks in automatically when the stock market starts to fall too, um, too rapidly. So we learn, we learn about how to introduce these kinds of self-correcting um, behaviors. So that was a very long answer to explain these four strategies of nature, diversity, design of networks, self-organizing behavior, and uh, mechanisms for self-regulation. That's very interesting. As a matter uh, of interest, do we know uh, in the evolution of leaves, were there leaves that had less loopiness and that aren't around at the moment? Well, there is the ginkgo, which is the most uh, earliest and primitive uh, tree. It is still around. Uh, it has a leaf vein structure that is not loopy, that is sort of unidirectional. Over time, through evolution uh, with angiosperms, the, uh, that loopiness came to be a, a strategy to overcome the problem that ginkgos have. So the ginkgo tree is still around. It has another defense, which is it is smelly. So that's a defense around uh, trying to keep, <laughs> keep damage from happening to the leaf from having insects around. So there's just so many strategies in nature and, and this, this redundancy in the network seems to be one that has evolved over time and has some utility, which doesn't mean there aren't other strategies that could work. But this resiliency is, uh, is important for us to think about, and we've certainly learned a lot about it through the pandemic, because human society works through networks. Modern civilization is all about networks, is all about moving goods through trade networks and uh, moving ideas and moving finances. We've seen what happens when there is a disruption in, in the network. So there's been... Yeah, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. What about diversity? So diversity is such a 
fundamental bedrock of, of nature that diversity has, uh, diversity of species uh, has increased over time. And the value of, of diversity, uh, there must be some value because there, again, is a cost to maintaining so many different, uh, different species. And uh, some, some species have an obvious uh, function and value, like pollinators. We know a lot about that. Uh, about that now and how important that is to, to humans in terms of um, agriculture. Uh, but what is the value of just having a lot of different species, even though we might not understand all of their functions? One of the values is uh, just having options. So if there is a, uh, a problem, a damage, a disease, uh, something wipes out one of the one species, there can be other species that are there to fill in that function. So a kind of insurance uh, benefit. And this is quite a, a prominent idea, of course, in the world of finance, where we all know about diversity of portfolios and, uh, and the value of keeping uh, keeping some diversity, even though, again, it might not get you the highest rate of return over the short term, but over the long term, uh, that diversity, and particularly diversity in different types of investments, this was a Nobel Prize winning idea, there's a story about it in the book, uh, diversity of types of investments can be beneficial over the long term, even though maybe, maybe less beneficial over the short term. So in the diversity that we have in a species diversity, say the, the diversity in our, um, in our crops, in the species that we rely on to feed humanity, there can be no more important function than we have than, than feeding ourselves. Um, that diversity in the species and the varieties within those species in the human food basket has been shrinking over time. As we look at climate change and different, uh, different conditions that the species that we rely on for food need to adapt to, it's just so important to keep that diversity alive. We have also diversity in languages uh, is declining with the homogenization of cultures around the world. And it's hard to say exactly what the benefit of keeping that diversity alive will be to pinpoint it exactly. But we do know, if we look to nature, uh, that having that diversity will be beneficial at some point as, again, we face inevitable um, disruptions and new conditions that, that our agricultural systems and our cultural systems need to adapt to. Yes, and, and, and we, are, we are in the, the middle or somewhere facing a, a biodiversity crisis. And some people argue that that is on its own just a, a virtually an existential crisis as well. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. It is the definition of an existential crisis because those species no longer exist. And as far as nature is concerned, should we say, having a 
diversity is important. And in terms of the biodiversity, obviously, for any particular species that uh, goes extinct, that's obviously in itself, you know, a crisis and a tragedy. But within an ecological system and in, in terms of another level, it's exponentially so. Yeah. So there's one aspect, which is the moral side of the question, and that's a moral. People can bring their own values, whatever they value. Uh, if they they uh, they value biodiversity, that's a question of values. Then there's the other question of the utility of biodiversity. And, you know, nature works on utility. What 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 brings survival? <laughs> Uh, so we can look to nature for some indication that there is utility from uh, from keeping biodiversity alive. Yes, yeah, so you talked about an example in terms of finance, but where else would we this principle do you think be worthwhile exploring more? So again, in our agricultural systems, it's just so so uh, clear that we need to keep the genetic diversity to provide options for the future. So there are the uh, the gene banks for uh, for crop species. There's the well-known uh, what's called the doomsday vault in Svalbard uh, in northern Norway, way above at the in the Arctic Circle. And that's just such an important function for humanity to keep that keep that diversity alive. And that's where all the gene banks around the world send copies of their, of their seeds to be kept in Svalbard in a vault and, uh, and have that available when, when breeders uh, require that information. And there's some stories in the book. Actually, one of my favorite stories is about, uh, is about, the the situation in Syria and how they the conflict and how they sneaked out the seeds to get into the this uh, uh, gene bank in Svalbard and eventually got those those seeds back and it became the basis for wheat in Kansas to be able to breed to overcome a problem with a particular pest the Hessian fly. So we never know exactly how it will be useful, but it, but in some way, having that diversity is useful. Yeah, very interesting. It's And also, uh, you write about in the connection with self-regulation about uh, dealing with fires. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, because it's quite interesting, um, not to give it all away, but that the you know indigenous knowledge seems to have been, uh, indigenous people seem to have been aware of, of ways to do this, um, to deal with fires that maybe the modern, modern us moderns uh, ha- haven't been able to or, or have much to learn. Yeah, exactly. I love this story about Smokey, Smokey Bear. It's a lot of interesting uh, <laughs> characters in, the, in that story. Uh, but the idea is the fires that we're seeing now, the uh, the very severe fires in the American West, in Australia, uh, around the world. Part of that, part of the reason for those uh, those extreme fires is increasing temperatures and and drought. We know that that's the climate change impact. But also part of the reason is because there has been the buildup of fuels for the last centuries. Because the policy has been, policy, I'll just take the U.S. example, of the U.S. Forest Service was previously 
to suppress fires, that fires are bad, fires should be put out. This is an idea that came from European forestry, uh, introduced into North America by European foresters. And, uh, and that was the way that forests were managed. So there was a lot, uh, there is a lot of fuel buildup of fuel, which makes it possible, gives a lot of fuel to the fire. Uh, indigenous management of forests is, is very different. That is the idea of having small fires, you know, fires that might be uh, set or might be lightning, set by lightning, to allow them to burn. And that that uh, burns back the fuel load. So we don't build up to the extremes that we're seeing uh, today. And uh, and that was the indigenous management of the uh, Aborigines in Australia, of the um, indigenous peoples in, in North America. And now we're seeing the really dangerous impact of not following that kind of um, strategy. So I think the you know, the lesson there is that, you know, people who live with their systems for a long time, as opposed to, you know, importing what they think they know about other systems are, uh, you know, are very knowledgeable. And there's a lot of experience that, uh, that has been ignored and that we can, we can learn from. And I think in the, in the world of, of fire management, that this is now being recognized. Yeah, and, and more generally as well, it's probably the case, isn't it, that the indigenous peoples are actually very good at, at conservation. And some people argue that a lot of the, the big conservation uh, initiatives uh, very often involve uh, removing indigenous peoples in, uh, various, in various ways from their own lands. And, and in fact, they have a very good track record of actually of conservation. Yeah, well, I don't want to over romanticize but I think when the, those peoples who have lived with their land and lived with their, the resources that they need to rely on for a long time and know that their life depends on those resources uh, have developed some extremely ingenious ways. I'm thinking about you know, water conservation technologies um, from very ancient parts of the world and uh, and just the ingenuity and, and experience of people who have lived with their systems for many, many, many millennia. Yes, absolutely. And this, the bottom-up decentralized ideas uh, seem, seem really important as well, because as you say, on the one hand, they, they, they are very powerful and uh, local people are in a very good place to contribute as they understand. Very, very, very interesting. Now, self-organizing behavior, um, and this is something I think that uh, has... has uh, uh, seems to have got uh, more attention in recent decades. Um, it's called autopoiesis. I don't know how you pronounce it. But uh, yeah, can you talk about self-organizing behavior in terms of nature? So self-organizing behavior is something that we see throughout nature in social species in particular. So if you think about an ant, when you drop a crumb on the floor, first you'll see a bunch of ants scurrying around. And then somehow it seems like there must be some general or something that's whipping them into line. 
And they uh, they end up marching in a single line and carrying that crumb back to um, back to the nest. But there is no general. There's nobody with central command that is telling those ants how to uh, how to line up. Uh, and that is governed by uh, by instinct and the pheromones that the ants follow, which is they're just re- they're just responding to the information that is right around them. They are leaving signals for the ant behind them, and they are following signals from the ant in front of them. They have no well, I don't know what they think ants, but. Um, we can assume that they don't have the concept that they should get into a single line or that there is some grand design for how they should line up and react to some central command. They're just reacting to their local information. And that kind of self-organizing behavior appears in uh, schools of fish and the way cells organize into uh, zebra stripes and termite mound, how termite mounds get uh, get constructed. Uh, so we see that over and over again in uh, in nature, this idea of self-organizing behavior that is not central command. You know, we might think about a queen bee or a queen ant in the nest. They don't really have control over all of the uh, over all of the workers. So there's some something that is telling us that there is some benefit of having that decisions really instincts in the case of of ants, uh, but having some decision-making power based on local information. So the story, the chapter in the book, and I think this is my favorite chapter in the book, really framed around Eleanor Ostrom, who was an incredible political scientist who won the, the Nobel Prize in economics for the work that she did that overturned the dogma of the day. So she started working in the 1950s and passed away um, over a decade ago. The dogma was that central command is required to manage resources. This comes from the idea of tragedy of the commons and and Garrett uh, Garrett Hardin, where if you're going to, to keep uh, forests from getting cut down or, or manage resources, manage fisheries. There, there's, it's regulation. It's coming from the top. It's, uh, it's, it's monitored by, a, uh, you know, by somebody in the capital, far away in the capital, that there's this central control. Eleanor Ostrom came along uh, with the idea that, well, that may be true in some situations, but it is not necessarily true. And there are many cases where this self-organizing behavior, again, this is with the agency of, of humans, which is what the ants don't have, but humans have their own agency. And self-organizing behavior where communities work together to manage their resources in ways that are beneficial to them can, can not always, but can, come to better outcomes than some central command. So she first studied this phenomena with managing groundwater in Los Angeles, uh, with uh, community policing in cities around the US, in, uh, in communities that manage 
forests and manage fisheries and manage natural um, resources. And she documented many, many cases where this kind of self-organizing behavior led to beneficial and likely better management of the resource than some central command, top-down kind of um, kind of command. So she came up with uh, eight principles that make this kind of self-organizing behavior um, uh, possible and successful. So if we look to nature and the so many examples of self-organizing behavior in nature, that also gives us some clue that there can be perhaps some benefit to, uh, to people, to humans, to modern civilization, to uh, consider when that kind of bottom-up self-organizing behavior can lead to better outcomes than top-down central command. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, particularly when it comes to uh, groups on the ground who are excluded. And you can see this, and there's some critics of conservation projects and things that the people on the ground are excluded uh, in some cases, and they're not involved in the decision making. And often, if it's indigenous people, they often have, you know, a great track record in, in conservation. But I suppose there's also the political side of it as well. And people like Hayek took advantage of these kind of ideas, you know, to propose a very uh, dark, really, uh, political economic ideology, which is with us today in terms of neoliberalism, you know, that in, in a sense, the state's not necessary and that, you know, uh, it can all be done, uh, at least, you know, theoretically, um, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the resources of a local community. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't argue that, uh, that uh, this kind of bottom-up self-organizing is, is the uh, most beneficial strategy for all aspects of decisions that we need to make. I personally kind of like mass mandates. But there are, th this is the way I try to frame it in the book, is that, you know, that's what a leader is. A leader is identifying those situations where there needs to be some kind of top-down, maybe it's mask mandates, uh, and identifying those situations where some bottom-up uh, kind of management might lead to successful outcomes, whether that's forest management or you know, managing lands. Uh, and that's, that's where leadership comes in, to recognize when to promote bottom-up and when you really do need a... Uh, a uh, top down. So there's one story in the book, which is about the uh, international climate agreements, which have been extremely difficult and sadly not very successful because we keep seeing greenhouse gas concentrations going up in the atmosphere uh, around this complete switch in strategy from the discussions prior to the Paris Agreement and how the Paris Agreement was, was a completely different more bottom-up strategy, where instead of sort of cutting the the uh, the pie of allowed atmospheric emissions into into different pieces and allocating them out to countries, to to go with a more bottom-up strategy where countries bring to the table what they can commit to based on their own uh, situation. Well, we know that it's not sufficient. That even if in the unlikely event that countries actually reduce their emissions to the degree that they brought to the table, um, it's still not sufficient. But it is the first time, the first time that countries could actually agree.
Yes, yeah, absolutely. And now in terms of infrastructure, I know there's been commitments in America, major infrastructure commitments, and it is a really big question generally. Uh, we've seen these extreme climate and so forth, sponge cities in China, problems with the design and their effectiveness. But uh, it's this resilient infrastructure developed by governments on the one hand, and I guess also to some extent uh, developed by corporations as, as well. The extra cost of, of an including resilience, I guess it's a slightly different paradigm that's unfolding. I'd be interested to get your thoughts a little bit on, on that. Yes. So we, we had an example in Texas when, uh, when there was that cold snap in Texas and, uh, and they had so many problems. And part of the reason for that is because their grid is not connected to the rest of the grid in the country. So that was an example where they were not very resilient because they were not, they were not connected because they, they wanted their own grid. So maybe that serves some purposes, but it, when you have a problem, then you kind of wish that you were more uh, connected. But there is a cost. There is a cost to resilience. And there is one story in the book, which is about Paul Barron, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was one of the very important characters for the founding of the Internet. And he, he worked for the Rand Corporation uh, during the Cold War. So this goes back a ways. But his task was to recommend the structure of the, the network for the communications network for, um, for AT&T to be able to be resilient to a, um, a strike. So this was of obvious importance during, during the Cold War. So the thinking at the time was a very hub and spokes kind of model where there's a central uh, a central hub, which has spokes out to uh, to its other centers. Paul Rand came to the idea to design the communications network more like a leaf vein, these loopy networks, many different ways to get from point A to point B if there's a failure in one part of the network or a nuclear strike takes out one of the one of the hubs. And he came, to uh, to the Defense Department and AT and T with this design for this decentralized network, and he was laughed out of the room. He was not taken seriously at all because of the cost. It seemed wasteful. He went on to do more work on that network design, and over the decades, his design was picked up by the. Um, by the founders of the internet for moving packet information packets around. And that's the uh, fundamental feature of the design of the internet without which I mean, maybe we wouldn't have the kind of internet we have uh, today without that kind of thinking from Paul Barron. So there is a cost and there's trade-offs. I mean, there, and again, the, the cost for resilience is a function of how much damage would ensue if you didn't have that resilience. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. I'd, I'm, I'd like to get your perspective also on um, communities, um, thinking about resilience in communities, uh, some, something, something I'm interested in. But I'm just wondering, is there such an idea as frugal resilience <laughs> insofar as what tends to happen in, in, in these climate crises and other crises is, you know, it's the poorest and the excluded that bear the heaviest burden uh, in, in terms of the, the damage and, uh, and so forth. But um, 
to reduce this cost, as you say, because uh, that kind of smart infrastructure or building resilient infrastructure is already seems like vast sums of money being invested required on many fronts to deal with 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 you know uh, responding to global warming. I'm just wondering whether there is some lower cost options to develop resilience and and whether you see any places where they that that could be more powerful or you're even aware of any examples well the example from a leaf is uh is through how much is invested in the building of the veins so for for a plant a leaf to build the veins it's a cost it's a cost of materials and it's a cost of energy what we see in a leaf vein is those small veins that are conferring that resilience that would be able to take the take the flow if there's damage in another part of the leaf. Those are very thin, require less investment of, of energy and materials. So there's some kind of trade-off that is uh, that's going on um, there. You know, in the pandemic, we've seen um, we've seen this realization about the importance of resilience in supply chains when we had we're still seeing shortages of things that are traded we had the shortages of of hand sanitizer and masks and and really important things and then the um cost of not being resilient was really apparent of having very efficient supply chains that rely on single suppliers so there's a lot of thinking there's a lot of things being written in the business world about uh, learnings from the pandemic for having more resilient supply chains, which basically just means having more options. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of communities, you know, in your book, you, your examples are taken from nature. In, in the social world, what kinds of things uh, do you think uh, are important in terms of uh, developing, catalyzing uh, resilience? And is, is resilience important um because you can imagine a, a situation where you know supply chains have broken down or maybe in a big city where the vast amount of food coming in and waste going out and all kinds of things um but the supply chains you know if, if they break if they're not 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 working uh at a community level uh how people get fed i mean you, you're, you've done a lot of work i know your interest special interest really in food and food systems but um very quickly things start to go wrong if you can't access food, uh, you can't feed people. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, it's a bit of a general question there about, about communities and, and resilience. Yeah, so I think about this question a lot because I, um, I have a special place in my heart for India, for rural India. And there is the question of how much to be market connected and how much to rely on your own production to be more subsistence. And we saw that again, the pandemic all brought this out. And by the way, I wrote this book before the pandemic <laughs> and I was just finishing the manuscript when the pandemic hit in March, 2020. I was just sending in the final manuscript. So it was a little bit unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> There, so being completely self-reliant, completely subsistence is a dangerous strategy when there is some damage, a drought or, or pest, something that might happen to your production, then you're, you're in trouble because that's all you have to rely on. 
being completely connected to the market is also a dangerous strategy because if something happens to global food prices far away from where you even think about, um, you couldn't be affected and increase in your price of food. This is what happened in the food price spikes of 2008 and 2011, where you have these cascading, because of global impacts, this cascading effect on food prices, which enormous impact on uh, particularly the urban poor, which depends on that supply and has nothing at all to do with the increase in, in food prices, but they suffer the consequences. So where is that in between place between self-reliance and dependence or connection? The answer clearly is not all one or all the other. It's somewhere in between. And where is is a question that um, villages and communities, um, it's, it, and it's not an, a, a question that people in communities intentionally ask themselves about, you know, what, what's the right degree of dependence to be along that continuum of self-reliance or, or connection. It's just, you know, happens from the ways that economies get get structured, which tends towards being more and more connected in a capitalist sort of uh, economy. So I don't have a good answer to your question, but the answer is somewhere in between the extremes. <laughs> yes, uh, very good. We, we live in, in, in some kind of information age. Information is hugely important, source of economic growth, economic development, innovation, and so forth. And I'm just wondering whether there is some equivalent or some some way in which uh, in, in natural systems, you know, information plays a role, cybernetics. Uh, is, is that something that people are exploring? Is that something you've thought about or come across? Yeah. Well, the flow of ideas and flow of information is just such a fundamental feature of our modern world. And social insects, social animals also uh, communicate. So the way that social insects keep pathogens from destroying their nests is very interesting and has some applicability to uh, to our world. If you think about a uh, a termite mound or a beehive, or you know, there's just millions and millions of individuals who are living in close proximity to each other. And that seems like it is just, uh, uh, you know, fertile for epidemics to come in and wipe them out. And that does not happen very often. And part of that, there's all kinds of strategies that these social insects have, ones that we would not want to do, like taking out the infected and leaving them off to die and things that does not have parallel in human societies, but some things do, and that is the communication structure. So those those social networks, their communication networks, are are compartmentalized so that uh, so that they're communicating and interacting in their compartments. So there's the compartments that are do different functions: the workers and the um, the waste managers and the different different functions and different compartments. So when a pathogen comes into a, uh, uh, a nest or a termite mound, they have these compartments that shut down. How they communicate, I don't know. It's a fascinating question, how they actually communicate. But they shut down and they have these compartments in their social network so they can cut off a whole compartment so it doesn't, so the, the pathogen 
doesn't spread and keeps epidemics from happening. So that's the idea of, you know, stopping flights to Europe or, or, you know, uh, shutting down the uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, keeping themselves isolated. But that it's that same idea of how do you construct your communications, the social networks, so that it's compartmentalized to be able to shut it down when there is a danger that is uh, that's coming in. Do you think there's any connection between resilience and equity in d- developing more sustainable, uh, more, more resilient systems? Is there a way in which they're possibly more integrated, less hierarchical, more communal or less exclusionary? Well, I like to be optimistic, but I have to say <laughs> these past few years, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I suppose another way of framing would be um, if you want to build a more resilient system. Um... So I've worked, uh, you know, worked all my career in science, but I realize over time that science and better scientific understanding and better technology is all for the good, but our key issue in the modern world at this at this point is not so much about having better technologies or better understanding in science, but about governance and about human societies organize themselves to make decisions and to distribute resources. That's really the biggest issue that we face. And that's one where where these strategies from nature apply only insofar as the intent of our leaders is for the the benefit and the welfare of of um, everyone in society, including the most vulnerable in society. And that's the part that is um, you know is reason not to be so optimistic these days, except that we do have some semblance of the ability to uh, to have some self-regulating um, selection in those places of the world that, that have some democracy. That's what democracy is. That's what elections are, is, uh, is some kind of self-regulation where, where if you have leaders that are not meeting your interests, you vote them out of office. Uh, and fortunately, we did see that in the uh, in the in the U.S. But but that's where you asked me earlier what keeps me up at night. And really, that's that's it. It's not so much about can we come up with some great technology. It's about about can as a human society, can we organize ourselves and um, overcome the tendency towards you know, concentration of power and, and vested interests. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very interesting. I realized you signed the, the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, and I've spoken to quite a few people on this podcast about degrowth and about the problem of endless economic growth, relentless maximizing of profits and, and, and related ideas. And they seem to be in, in, in rather different categories, in a sense. No, nowhere does the idea of resilience 
uh, fit in there. So if these are the the main uh, drivers, uh, you're you're going to you know create systems at various levels that that don't have resilience or, or aren't optimized for it, shall we say? Is is that idea of efficiency? Uh, do you think that's a fair comment to some extent that efficiency is is a criteria that's kind of uh, part of the, the 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 way science operates as against something like resilience? Yeah, so efficiency certainly is the the guiding principle of of uh, of our our world. But we're seeing now discussion about resilience in places that we probably would not have seen, you know, five years ago, and uh, you know, in the financial world, in the private sector. And I think this is the process of of learning. The more that there are shocks that affect people and affect bottom lines, the more there will be the incentive to incorporate resilience, because in the long run, be able to withstand those shocks better. So the more frequent, I think this is the process. We are a very young species in this world, and we are extremely, just just a flicker in time that human societies are in this system that we live in now of this very interconnected, highly, highly connected world. So this is very, very new if you think about it in terms of the whole length of of human um, civilization and just a a sliver if you think about it in terms of the the whole history of of, uh, nature itself. So there's learning. That's what evolution in nature is. and, And in human societies, we have ideas um, and learning. So the more that we in our very interconnected world experience these kinds of shocks, the more that we build in resilience. So again, a a pandemic example of that is that those countries who who experienced SARS uh, were better prepared for uh, COVID-19. So I do think over time, we get through all of this over time, the more shocks that we experience, whether they're economic shocks or uh, or shocks from pandemics or climate shocks or whatever the kinds of shocks they are, the more that that uh, that there's the experience of, of shocks, there's more learning and more of uh, more resilience to be able to get through those shocks. So I'm a little optimistic. I don't know. I don't know whether to be optimistic at this point. I think so. I, I guess it's it's tricky as well because it's kind of a risk related thing. And if you you know if in a particular year there hasn't been a shock, but you've had to pay the cost of the resilience, as it were, you know, or, or, over time, and uh, that's 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 a problem. And also how how you measure how you measure resilience. You know, uh, I don't know if we have any thoughts on that. You know, we we know what the uh, profits of uh, you know Apple Corporation are, and so forth, and we can measure those. But um, and in a year where there were no crises or, or shocks and so forth, it might look one way, and in a year where there were, it might look another way. So uh, it'd be interesting. You you mentioned the financial markets, and I know you've written about them a little too. Uh, to the degree to which those that kind of idea would be embedded in in in, in ways in which investors would would assess. Uh, corporations. Yeah. So this is uh, so the uh, 
the learning from shocks is also a function of the frequency of the shocks. So we didn't have a, a pandemic like this since 1918. So there's a lot of time in between. So that then there's less incentive to prepare because it always seems like it's not going to happen until it does. But then again, getting back to the circuit breakers in the stock market that uh, that kick in automatically when the stock market starts to crash, that was put in place in, in Black Monday 2010, I believe, which is not very long ago. So there's continual learning about the rules. This is from the finance world, the rules for when to have that circuit breaker kick in. So a circuit breaker has a pause in, in trading for some time to, to allow the market to stabilize. But there was, yeah, there was a lot of learning because if you remember at the beginning of, uh, in March, 2020, there was just repeated trickings of the circuit breaker as the stock market was crashing. Uh, and then the rules kept changing. So there was this iterative process of, of learning. So over the long course, so, so that's the process of evolution. And, and you know, my, my, one of my favorite quotes is from somebody I can't even remember, an anthropology professor I had as an undergrad. Uh, and, and I wish I could remember his name because it just made such an impact on me. And it was probably a, maybe a throwaway comment. But he said, uh, ideas in people work like genes in other animals. So we have ideas and learning the way that evolution works towards, uh, towards finding solutions to problems. Yeah, very, very interesting. Can you talk finally then about this, the question of self-regulation and the self-regulating mechanism? Yeah. So this idea of self-regulation is a little bit hard to explain, but is such an important strategy of, of nature. And we see it in so many aspects from physiology up to the global scale cycling of nutrients in and out of the uh, atmosphere. So the global carbon cycle, the way carbon moves from ocean to atmosphere to land and back and forth, uh, is a, a beautiful, elegant example of this self-regulation in nature. Um, I don't think I want to take your listeners into all the gory nuts and bolts of the global carbon cycle. But the idea is that if we look over time, like over geologic time, millions and millions of years, we see an oscillation of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. It varies, of course but it oscillates between bounds. And what is setting those bounds is a, uh, a self-regulating mechanism where the hotter it gets, the more rainfall there is, because there's more evaporation, and the more CO2 gets pulled out of the atmosphere. So that leads to a cooling. And then when it gets too cool, the precipitation slows down, there's less CO2 pulled out of the atmosphere, and the CO2 increases. So there's a this on this geologic time scale, this beautiful sort of steady state oscillation within these uh, these bounds. And that kind of self-regulating is uh, present in the way our bodies regulate uh, blood sugar and many different aspects of um, physiology. 
Yes, and unfortunately, I, I I can't help but see the political side of that. The business loves self-regulation, and everywhere they can, uh, and not so much uh, actual government regulations. And you do see this again and again, and is very problematic. Uh, whether it be in terms of the voluntary carbon markets, which you know uh, are problematic in terms of who's setting the rules and so forth. So it's quite interesting that some of these ideas do have political manifestations as well. Um, um, but uh, I just one other question I just wanted to ask you about tipping points. Where do tipping points fit in? Are they a strategy of one kind or another? So tipping points you might think about as, for example, the most, the most uh, talked about example of a tipping point is lake systems that are where there are too many nutrients get added to the system to run off of phosphorus and, and nitrogen. And then the ecosystem flips into a different species composition. And then it's, if you try to get it back, it's not exactly going in, you can't just go in reverse. You just, it just flips. So uh, it's certainly a phenomenon we see in nature, but if you think about a well-functioning ecosystem, which is has diversity and, um, turnover and all of the nice things we like to see in, in healthy ecosystems. Um, you don't, I think you rarely see that kind of tipping point. You see that where, where you have disturbed ecosystems and invasive species come in and then they just take over and that's made possible by the disturbance. Um, so a, a healthy, diverse, well-functioning ecosystem it kind of stays away from that edge of, of tipping points. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, so these these other these strategies, if if they're uh, pursued, as it were, or present, shall we say, in an ecosystem, uh, it 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 will uh, make make the ecosystem itself more resilient. Right. So having that resilience is kind of some insurance to not flip into an undesirable state. Yes, yes, fantastic. I, I one other thought, resilient communities, does that mean anything to you? Because I'm interested in doing some more work on the whole area. Um, and I'm just curious to whether it's something you've come across at all um, as an idea that, that links to what you're doing or just generally. Yeah, well, resilient communities is such an important concept um, uh, currently because there's so many uh impacts on communities, whether it's a, a pandemic or it's a hurricane or a fire. And the idea of resilient communities is, can they bounce back? Can they either bounce back or uh, morph into a, uh, into a state that will make them more resilient to the next uh, impact that comes along? So sometimes we think about resilience as just being resilient to stay the same. And that's kind of, that's the engineering way of thinking about resilience. If you have a bridge and it gets blown by the wind, can it come back to its, uh, come back to its design state? In communities, it's kind of different because it's, you know, we're people and complicated and complex and all kinds of power dynamics and all kinds of things that go on in, in um, human communities. So the idea of resilience is a little bit different in that, uh, yes, can we recover from shocks, but also can we use shocks to be better and more resilient to shocks in the future? So we kind of saw this, I think, in uh, in the pandemic where the 
um, where the countries which had experienced SARS were seen to be better prepared for uh, for COVID. We saw this in uh, the recent uh, Ida hurricane in the Gulf, where the levees that had been put in place after Hurricane Katrina um, did confer some some resilience and uh, reduced the impact of what Ida could have otherwise brought to those communities. So I think we so there's a kind of engineering way of thinking about resilience, and then a a more social ecological way of thinking about resilience, which is not just returning to what what was before, but using shocks as an opportunity to um, to improve resilience. It's very interesting, and I I spoke to uh, someone recently who talked about the in America FEMA would only give the money to rebuild the same quality and standards and 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 protocols of previous you know infrastructure after crisis which is quite interesting um but does nature do that kind of resilience as well when it goes through a crisis actually become somehow more resilient well if we look at the whole uh, the whole tree of life we see shocks that then lead to a different um, a different outcome. For example, you know, the age of the the dinosaurs, there were yeah. shocks yes. Yes. from um, you know, from the uh, asteroids and and wiping out the the uh, the dinosaurs. And that gave the opportunity for the age of mammals, for mammals to to come on the scene in a very prominent way. So that's what nature tells us. It's just constant change, constant change. Fascinating. Fascinating. Can I say that that example you brought up about FEMA goes back to this idea of self-organizing bottom-up decisions. If you gave that money to people and said, you can rebuild your house in the way that you think it's going to be more resilient the next time a, uh, a hurricane comes along, which it certainly will, uh, maybe they would have made some different decisions and been more resilient to the next hurricane. Yes, I think it is changing now, but fascinating. It's such a rich area. And as you say, just so important, really. And I think this is it's obviously going to be um, just, unfortunately, something that's that we're going to need to understand a lot more about, really, in terms, particularly in terms of communities and networks and so forth. Well, what's next for you, Ruth? Well, I'm very excited that uh, at Columbia University, where I'm faculty, we are starting a new school, a new school, which is a big deal, like a school of public health, a school of law, a new school on climate. So I've been working quite a lot on the climate school, and we are uh, looking forward to having educational programs, training lots and lots of people who will be able to to have good ideas and uh, and go forth in the world to help think through these very tricky problems that we face. Well, I wish you the very best of success. Sounds very exciting. And thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your your ideas, your research, and all your, your important work. Thank you so much. Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. 
The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change, profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.